trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for anybody who is awakening to the fact that all is not well. Yep, maybe you feel like uh, there's a lot of deception out there, or maybe the truth is being twisted or turned in ways to convince me to do things that are against my own interest. In fact, it's very possible someone is just trying to shoehorn you into a role that uh, you have not agreed to. Something along the lines of you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Here, eat your bugs. Got a got a thought to start with today. Um, it's a tweet I picked up yesterday. The Great Resist. Tell me if any of this resonates with you. Own your own things. Be self-sufficient. Drive your car. Eat meat. Marry and have a family. Homeschool your children. Have full privacy. Love God. You will be free and you will be happy. Now, if any of those things resonate with you, my friend, you're in the right place. Thank you for joining us today. Great sponsors make this program possible on a daily basis. I just want to give a quick shout out to them. Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Man, there's so much going on here. Sometimes it's hard to even know where to begin, but... One of the things that has impressed me over the years is when I encounter people who aren't just blindly swatting at symptoms, standing on the sidelines, you know, complaining or worse, trying to tear down the people who are actually doing something, trying to be problem solvers. I like to find those who can zero in on the root causes of whatever it is that needs to be fixed. And usually it's not because they're, you know, lusting for power and they're just, you know, looking for opportunity to start exerting control over other people. More often than not, the difference is found in individuals who recognize the underlying principles that are at stake. And I found a commentary that I wanted to share with you that has to do with school shootings. Now, I know this is kind of being beat to death in the news, but I want you to consider what John Daniel Davidson has to say. This is from thefederalist.com. The headline is, school shootings aren't caused by faulty gun laws, but by the collapse of the family. And he says, until we're willing to address the breakdown of family and community, nothing will change. The massacres will continue. The article says at a press conference Wednesday in the aftermath of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Governor Greg Abbott said, almost said something profound, almost. Asked by reporters about gun laws in Texas, Abbott responded by talking about the need for more mental health resources. That's kind of a catch-all term often bandied about by Republican politicians in the wake of mass shootings like the one in Uvalde in which 19 elementary school kids and two teachers were killed by a deeply disturbed 18-year-old. Abbott, though, started going in a different direction with his response. He noted that 18-year-olds have been able to buy rifles in Texas for more than 60 years and then asked, why is it the majority of those 60 years we did not have school shootings and we do now? But then he stopped short, saying, the reality is I do not know the answer to that question. Now here the author says, well, maybe Abbott really doesn't know. Maybe it's too much to expect an unimaginative politician like him to delve into the myriad forces of social and cultural decay that produce 18-year-old mass murderers. 
Maybe he was just trying to deflect questions from hostile press corps. After all, in the wake of school shootings, GOP politicians tend to snap into a defensive crouch as predictably as Democrats tend to regurgitate irrelevant talking points about gun control, as President Biden did earlier this week. Maybe that's all this was. But whether he meant to or not, Abbott's comments approached the heart of the matter. In fact, he could have made an even more expansive claim. Texas has been awash in firearms of all kinds for two centuries. Ever since the first American impresarios began arriving in Texas at the invitation of the newly formed Mexican Republic. For the past 60 years or so, there have been no major technological advances in firearm lethality. So why is it that only now, over the past two decades, do we see the kind of mass shootings we saw this week in Texas, or this last week in Texas? Now, Abbott can pretend not to know, but the author says, I suspect that he, along with most everyone else in America, knows perfectly well the answer to that question. It has nothing to do with gun technology or gun control laws and everything to do with our corrupt culture and especially with the collapse of the family. Indeed, the Uvalde shooter was a walking advertisement for the moral bankruptcy of modern America and the hollowing out of the American home. Salvador Rolando Ramos Ramos was apparently raised without a father and until recently lived with his single mother, who reportedly struggled with drug addiction. Neighbors recall blow-ups between her and Ramos and police occasionally being called to his house. For the past few months, Ramos had been living with his grandmother who called the cops after he shot her in the face and left her for dead. Now, Ramos has been described by former classmates in news reports as a loner who was bullied over a speech impediment got into fights at school, and took solace in video games and chatting with strangers online. It was to one of these online strangers that he apparently confessed or hinted at what he was planning to do just before the attack on the elementary school. A broken home, no father or father figure in his life, no church or community of any kind, no real friends except those he met through social media. Here we have, in brief sketch, not just a profile of a school shooter, but an indictment of our entire culture. It was the same in Parkland and Sandy Hook and many other places. Something's very wrong out there, and it's manifesting itself in the proliferation of mass shootings by alienated young men. Now, the author says politicians and pundits don't want to talk about these things, partly because there's no law that we can pass to fix it. It's not a problem with an obvious solution, but they need to start talking all the same. We need to confront, collectively, the social maladies that create young men who murder indiscriminately, and chief among these maladies is the collapse of family and community. Two years ago, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd amid nationwide protests and riots led by Black Lives Matter, corporate media were eager to talk about so-called systemic racism, police brutality, and a host of other perceived social ills. But almost no one, except a few conservatives like Glenn Lowry, was willing to talk about the number one social ill afflicting black communities in America. The absence of fathers and the prevalence of single-parent households. Now, to his credit, Lowry argued that until we're willing to talk about that, we're not really serious about helping black Americans or reviving black communities. We're just using them for political advantage. He was right. So, too, with school shooters like Ramos, Uvalde is a small town, People know each other there as press reports have revealed in stark and heartbreaking ways in recent days. The brutal killing of so many school children has touched nearly the whole town in some way. But for as tight-knit as Uvalde now seems, Ramos himself was not very well known. 
not tied to others in the community by strong bonds. He was on his own and left to his own devices. He became consumed by evil content. Now, this is not to single out Uvalde, but to call to mind communities like it across the country where other young men like Ramos are struggling in obscurity. It's a difficult thing to confront, this failure in our neighborhoods and towns and communities, because it's above all a failure of charity, of neighborly love, and we're all guilty of it. Our leaders, though, bear special responsibility for making these cultural problems worse. Ramos had just turned 16 years old when the COVID lockdowns and school closures began. And these policies enacted by leaders who really don't care about the weak and powerless made all the problems teenagers like Ramos face unfathomably worse. As Anna Ziegler argued recently, the total disregard for the welfare of children, children who were isolated, ignored, and needlessly masked for two years, is not unrelated to the matter of school shootings. We could secure our schools the way we secure places that are frequented by adults deemed to be important people, she writes, but we don't. We do exactly what was done for the last two years, ignore the needs of the children, and cater to caterwauling unions. Now, John John Daniel Davidson says, it's quite possible that the response to the Uvalde massacre will be meaningless gun legislation that assuages the consciences of our political leaders, but does nothing to address the underlying causes of such violence. Just as the COVID school closures assuaged their consciences while making life worse for everyone else. You'll be able to tell the politicians who understand the real problem and take it seriously. They'll be the ones talking about the need for fathers, intact families, and neighborly love. Abbott says he doesn't know why we have school shootings today when we did not have them 60 years ago, but he knows. We all know. I don't know if that one kicks you in the heart or in the stomach like it, like it did me, but I think uh, John Daniel Davidson is, uh, is on to something here. I have a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. I hope you'll share it if you find that there's something useful. The cool thing to me is that's something where you and I have undeniable influence. Whether it's within the halls of our own home or within our community, within our church congregations, within our neighborhoods, we have influence that could be used to shore up the family, to shore up relationships, and to to help bring in those people who are otherwise being pushed to the margins. But we have to be the kind of people who actually notice that sort of thing and are willing to step up and be a kind, loving person, rather than outsource our care, in quotation marks, to politicians with more laws and more rules. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Very happy to uh, welcome my friend Keith Kelsch back to the program. Keith, as you know, is uh, he's a problem solver. And he is doing some great things in helping people find the high road to uh, solving a lot of the problems that we have. And Keith, you actually have a special meeting coming up later today that uh, you want our listeners to know about. going to be showing the, the film 2000 Mules, is that right? Correct, yes. All right. I've seen the I've seen the film, and I I would very much recommend that people take a look at it. Talk to me about uh, where and when, and then let's let's dive into a little bit about why uh, you're going to do this uh, this local showing of this for our listeners in Southern Utah. Uh, I just I think people uh, 
I call it the iron bubble. And sometimes we live in, in an iron bubble and nothing can get through and we don't want to hear what's going on. We don't want to see what's going on. And we think a recession is going to last just six months and it's not going to be very bad. It, it's kind of like a, a light tidal wave, you know, not much uh, of anything's really happening, but there's a lot happening in the world. And if you're aware at all about what's going on in the world, uh, it's it's a stark awakening. And we're trying to help people just become more aware of what, what really is going on. Now I have to ask, are those chickens in the background? Yeah, I got I got thirty five um, I got thirty five chickens in the background there. <laughs> That's this is what I love about you, though you uh, you are a guy who gets things done, and I I think that's actually one of the smartest things a person could do. Okay, enough about the chickens. I just I the the microphone can pick it up, but yeah, there, there's there's a very very strong effort to prevent people from even questioning whether anything could have been amiss in the the 2020 election. Keith, this isn't about uh, this isn't about saying Donald Trump is the answer to everyone's prayers and he's the one who deserves to be president. This is about can we have faith in the election process or is this so rigged that even our vote, our voice through our vote is is being taken from us? Yeah, it's not about power. It's, it's, I used to think that it was about just grabbing power by whatever means. It's really about an agenda. And the agenda, when you really, really dig down, it's like onions. Onions have layers. <laughs> it's like that movie Shrek. Once you right. pull out the onion layer, <clears throat> one layer after another after another, there's a belief there that just basically believes that all human beings are selfish. So therefore, we're going to take control. And on top of that, we're going to eliminate as many of you as we can because you're just not going to, we're going to save the world. You know, really, that's when it, what it really boils down to. And that's what 2000 Mules is not really about. It's about the process whereby power is obtained so they can impose an agenda on you. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a conspiracy anymore. This is secret combinations. This is people working behind the scenes. Let's put it this way, Brian. If you were suddenly, you know, let's say 15, 20 years ago, given, oh, $30 million, and then you had all kinds of people pandering after you and climbing after you to get this, get that, get that, you, um, you automatically want to separate yourself from people, and you become more isolated, and then you want to hang out with other people that are of the same wealth caliber this is the very problem of elitism wealth creates elitism it creates separation and the more you separate yourself from people the more you see them as selfish as uneducated as whatever may be and this is world this is what the world economic forum is all about this is what all of those those organizations whether it's the davos group or the Tavascott group whatever they are they're all elitists that separate themselves, have separated themselves from average people, and they have no consideration for who you are. No, I, they would take you. I'm with you. And to me, the, the biggest tell that this is something that people should be questioning, and I'm not saying you should automatically believe because I say it or because Keith is, is sponsoring a free showing of 2,000 meals, that doesn't mean you should automatically believe it. We're, que- we're telling people question this. Primarily for the reason that th- those people in power and those people who are trying to separate themselves from accountability and from being responsive to us are telling us you can't do that. That shouldn't be allowed. No one should should be even allowed to question this. And 
that's that's a danger signal, you know. If, and and I'm I'm going to leave it up to the people who watch the movie um, to make up their own minds. I I had questions to start with. After watching the movie, I felt like you know what those questions are actually very well founded, and I think there's some pretty convincing evidence. But I'll let I'll let people make up their own minds. For for those who want to go see it, first of all, you're showing this free of charge, correct? Correct. And this is going to be where and when? This is going to be at the Electric Theater uh, tonight at the Electric Theater, and uh, we're just excited to have some people come and and be a part of it. And it starts at um, six p.m. Be there early because we really want to start it early. And if you are bothered and frustrated, I have not even seen the the movie, the documentary yet. I wanted to watch it with my community members. If you are frustrated, hang out and talk with us and get to know who we are. We are the local Commonwealth. We're just a, we call ourselves the Dixie Business Network, but we're a local Commonwealth. And uh, we are a business network. We, We try to help each other and support each other's needs in a very remarkable way. And you can see more at localcommonwealth.com. And we do meet every Thursday. And we have there's a, a site, and you're welcome to come to our network. Okay, but we're I, putting this on free. I will include a link to the localcommonwealth.com so that people can can access that. Again, this is six o'clock tonight at the Electric Theater, sixty eight East Tabernacle in St. George, Utah. Keith, I'd like to follow up with you after you see this. I need I want to have you back on the show to get your reaction. And and just, you know, maybe get some of the feedback that you get from people. I'm I'm positive that people will have a lot to talk about after the showing of this documentary. And uh, and I'd be very curious to see what your reaction is, because you, you tend to think at a, at a fairly deep level. You're not someone who takes things you know superficially or just at face value. So if, if there's if there are flaws, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on the flaws or where it may fall short of making the case. But I'd also like to hear if it if it uh, makes a, a convincing case that. Yeah, there was there were some hijinks and there were some things that were done which cast doubt upon the process. Then uh, I would really like to get your take on that as well. Yeah, I, my my main message is that we don't have to feel despair. It doesn't have to be so bad that we finally organize. You know, if you're if you're have a lot of forethought, you can be a part of your community. My sister said something very interesting. It was her birthday yesterday, and she says. You know, if if the border were completely open, and if it all held uh, um, and a handbasket crashed in on us, and somebody came in knocking at my door, I'm not gonna. I'd I'd rather live my life the way that I want to be remembered, rather than in scarcity and fear and trembling. And I'm gonna have guns and prep myself to, to death. Now, I I I I prepare like anybody else, but I I don't want to be a burden on the world. I want to be able to be of service to the world. And I think if we all think like this and organize in this fashion, we can buff it and, and weather <laughs> the garbage that these secret combinations really want to impose on us. No, I'm, I'm with you. And this is one of the things that I really appreciate about your approach. I, I have been going very detailed through your book, The High Road, The Future of American Greatness. And, and I want our listening audience to know Keith has some really great ideas for ways that we can take back that power for ourselves in a, in a purely voluntary sense. And it's not about dragooning everybody or forcing everybody to, to, to do it a certain way. But if you really want to see community oriented solutions and, and I'm talking real solutions and not just let's point the spears this way instead of that way, this is a, this is an idea that you need to consider. And I hope that they'll go to your local commonwealth.com website 
And I really hope that they'll show up tonight at the Electric Theater at 6 o'clock to, to watch this free showing of 2,000 Mules. Uh, was it difficult to, to get a hold of the film? Or was, that, was that a fairly easy thing to do? Um, yeah, I was, I was able to buy it. And so it's a free showing, so therefore we're not, we're not charging anyone. And it's uh, kind of a public thing. They're happening all over the place, you know, free showings uh, that are private, non, non-paid. If I charge for it, then it's a different different situation. So Okay. Okay, Keith, so I'm going to follow up. I'll, I'll have some links in the show notes so people can, can check this out. But uh, I would like to see you back on the program in the next day or two because I really want to get your reaction. Yeah, no problem. Love to hear you. Okay, thank, talk. thanks for being my guest. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I have no goal here to convert you into one of my adherents, one of my, one of my fellow cultists who will follow me and slavishly believe everything I say. I just want you to think, ask questions, be as independent and as critical in your thinking as possible, because there's a lot of deception going on out there today. By the way, I want to point out lifesavingfood.com is one of my sponsors. Please, if you have ever given any serious thought to self-reliance, food storage, preparedness, this is probably a good time to do it. We'll actually be talking about this more in the next segment, but if you go to my, uh, to my show notes, which are at the website, The Brian Hyde Show, Com. You can click on the link that'll take you to Life Saving Food. I know you will find some things that will spark solutions in your mind. You'll find things that go, oh yeah, we could actually use that. I would ask you, please consider strongly acting on it sooner than later. Well, anytime I see someone upon, you know, no one needs an AR-15, I can be pretty certain that that person is not thinking of taking those kinds of tools away from government. For some reason, they have this fatal blindness that says, but, uh, <laughs> excuse me, the very same tool in the hands of uh, someone wearing, you know, a costume issued by the state with a piece of jewelry issued by the state, somehow that constitutes a good and noble thing, which is we're going to talk about in the next hour, um, actually is, is not necessarily the truth because, you know, nobody kills with greater abandon than government. And I mean, historically, really, governments that don't, limit their power and that are not checked and balanced in the exercise of their powers are far more deadly than you may realize. In fact, Paul Rosenberg has a great article. This is actually from 2013, so this is almost 10 years ago. He makes the case death by government is 20 times more common than death by criminal. Now he says, before I shock you with disturbing death by government facts, he goes, let me ask you a question. How important is reality to you? And he says, I know that's a strange question, but think about it for a second. If reality makes you uncomfortable, what should you do? Should you ignore it? Should you face it anyway? Should you find reasons to get rid of it? Should you attack the person who showed it to you? He says, you'll find nothing in this article about amendments, laws, and judges. What you will find here is a fact that has been passed over by the entire gun control argument. And here it is. It's really simple. So he says, think about it for a few seconds. The anti-gun arguments presume that the state is morally superior to individuals. Sorry, that bears repeating. 
the anti-gun arguments presume that the state is morally superior to individuals. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, even though they seldom say it explicitly, the gun control proponents believe that average people are too violent and erratic to hold guns. They want the government, the state, to take our guns away because only the state is responsible enough to handle serious weapons. But he says this is, however, a giant problem in that states are far more dangerous than individuals, 20 times more dangerous. And that's a demonstrable fact, by the way, not just an opinion. He says, I ran the numbers. It isn't even close. Now, keep in mind, again, this was published in 2013, so his numbers are close to 10 years old here. But according to the U.N. statistics, the total number of homicides in which guns were involved in 2010, that was the most recent year he was going on, were 93,414. And he says, I am as sure as I can be that those numbers are juiced. I have too much experience with the U.N., that's another set of stories for another day, to think that they left their agendas outside as they crunched these numbers. And he says, I'm going to ignore the inclusion of thousands of deaths in Mexico and other places that should be attributed to the U.S. war on drugs. So he says, I'm going to accept the numbers as they are. So let's say that guns are legitimately and primarily involved in all of these 93,414 cases. Now, maybe you think that's a pretty bad argument for the moral superiority of individuals. But if so, he says, take a deep breath and gather your moral courage. You ready? The death rate for states is more than 20 times as high. Now, this figure's been well documented, by the way. If you want to check it, start with political scientist R.J. Rummel's book, Death by Government. The actual figure may be higher than 200 million. So, 93,414 times 100 would be 9,341,400 people killed with guns over a century. Now, that's a bad number, but it's still less than one-twentieth of the 200 million who were killed by governments. Not possible, you say? Well, he says, sorry, your beliefs are clashing with reality, and your devotion to reality is at risk. Also, the 200 million deaths attributable to governments were over the course of the entire 20th century, when the average population was far less than what it is now. Population adjusted? States are probably 30 times more deadly than individuals. Now, he says, if you think I'm misstating this, then run the numbers yourself. The fact is, death by government is far more likely than dying during a criminal attack. And he says, you know this from your personal experience, too. How many fistfights have you seen among the 200 people who live closest to you in the past couple of years? Maybe one, maybe none. Among the 200 or so states in this world, there have been at least 30 fights over the same time. By the way, I don't think that number's improved in the last 10 years, just just saying. Paul Rosenberg says, The numbers say that states fight much, much more frequently than do individuals. And they certainly kill far more people when they do fight. By any objective standard, states have to be considered far more aggressive and violent than individuals. So who is it that should really be holding the weapons? Now, the usual argument to the contrary, by the way, goes like this. Somebody who is a government boy says, okay, maybe lots of people were killed by governments, but there were different leaders then. Now, a free-thinking person would say, and the morals of politicians have improved? Have their operations substantially changed? They still have the same capital city, right? And they still have a small group of men gathering up all the taxes and ordering everyone else around, right? Now, the government thinker will say, yeah, but uh, now we have modern, enlightened democracies. To which the free-thinker will say, I see... 
Please tell me this, precisely how and when did they become enlightened? By the way, that's when you're going to see them do a really good impression of a brook trout. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, such arguments, of course, actually have to do with people being irrationally devoted to governments and too afraid to consider otherwise. The fact is, most people don't want to hear that the powers in charge are violent, no matter how well documented death by government really is. If reality were ever to matter, it would be the flawed individuals who got the guns, not the mega-flawed states. I don't know, there's so much common sense in this. And again, this is from 2013, but I think this one has actually withstood the test of time very well. I don't know why. I mean, you know, we can we can go off into some really interesting conspiracy theories. Why is it the media always seems to go, you know, in the direction of, you know, this uh, we we have to have gun control and why haven't they done anything and oh my goodness, there's a there's a former columnist who lived in southern Utah. Um, I'm not naming names. Some of you will 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 recognize who I'm talking about. Just when I tell you there there is no public shooting story that comes up in the news that this guy just did not rage against. I told you so, these murderous people, these these Trumpers. Uh, Trump really lives in his head. But he just rages every time. It's time we do something. It's time we do something. And I think his intention is probably, you know, I, I want to see people protected. But the execution of that intention is to unleash a tyrant that desires to punish people who have harmed no one. And that, to me, is the, the long and short of the tyranny of imposing gun control, a blanket situation or a blanket solution on people who have offended no one, who have harmed no one, who have no intent of harming anyone. And by the way, I'm describing the vast majority of gun owners, including those who own those evil AR-15s and other, you know, semi-automatics with high-capacity magazines. The world is actually a safer place because of those people, because they're not out there abusing it. They're also not out there pointing those at people's faces and enforcing laws that oftentimes are nothing short of just bullcrap. Made-up rules that, uh, well, we have to enforce this. We have to, you know, foist ourselves into your life because of this regulation or that regulation. You want to try something enlightening if you don't already understand the difference? Look up the difference between mala and say laws versus mala prohibited laws. Mala and say laws are written to codify that it's wrong and that justice needs to be done in the case of acts that have a clear victim, rape, murder, arson, fraud, theft. Mala prohibited laws are simply a politician's words on paper saying you can't do this. Whether it's you can't have chickens in your backyard, you can't let your grass grow any higher than this. But the thing that all of these laws have in common is that they require force on the part of the state. So don't be bamboozled by people who think, well, it's time that we control people because somebody did something. And, you know, first of all, they're showing their own um, control issues. We live in a world where occasionally people do twist off, even sometimes people in authority. And you're not going to stop that. What you can do is control your own actions and prevent evil from coming into the world through you. But just because one person messes their pants does not mean that we need to to mandate that everybody from here on out needs to wear diapers just in case. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You'll find him at DixieChiro.com. This is great news for any of my listeners in southern Utah, particularly for those who uh, either are dealing with or know somebody who deals with neuropathy or is suffering from a bulging herniated disc or even if you've been injured in a car accident. Dr. Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic is there to help you. You realize with car accident injuries, often he can help you with no out-of-pocket costs. It's worth your time to check in with him. If you have bulging herniated discs, Here's a $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. Just call the office to get more information. If you have neuropathy, here's the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. Go to DixieCairo.com. Again, that's DixieCairo.com. There's also a link in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Okay, this is going to sound a little tinfoil hat-ish, but I've got to ask... When does another major fire at a food production facility stop looking like coincidence and start looking suspect? Something we might want to ask ourselves. I don't know if you're aware of this, but somebody pointed it out uh, actually a couple of months ago. Hey, does it seem weird that there's a lot of major food production facilities that for some reason or another are burning down one after another? I think the count is well up over 20 at this point. And last Saturday... This is according to an article here on the Gateway Pundit. One of the nation's largest egg producers, Forsman Farm in Howard Lake, Minnesota, burned to the ground, or at least one of their major barns burned to the ground. Now, what's significant about this? Well, I don't know. Have you been paying attention? Have you been looking at egg prices, for instance? You noticed how in many places they're going up? Well, Forsman Farms provides more than 3 million eggs to the largest retailers in the country. So this, uh, this just put a pretty big dent in the supply, or at least the, the continuing supply of eggs. Oh, and by the way, the cause of the fire remains a mystery as investigators evaluate the scene to determine how the barn was set ablaze. A Forsman Farm spokesperson told Minnesota's local CBS affiliate, Overnight, a fire destroyed one of our barns at our Howard Lake farm. No one was injured, and we're grateful that first responders were quickly on the scene to put out the fire. Unfortunately, chickens were lost because of the fire. Now, we're evaluating the extent of the damage, which appears to be confined to a single structure, as well as investigating the cause of the fire. Now, according to, uh, to one of the people who is, is on scene there in Minnesota, Forms, Forsman Farms spokespeople say they don't have a firm number yet, But the estimate is that tens of thousands of chickens, possibly 200,000 chickens, were killed in the massive blaze. And again, it's, it's, it's great that there was no human casualties. But authorities at this point are saying, well, it looks like the fire was likely accidental. Now, the, the fire at this commercial egg farm in Minnesota is just the latest food production facility to mysteriously go up in smoke over the past year. As inventory on store shelves in the U.S. becomes, uh, well, more and more scarce amid a fertilizer and food shortage and historic inflation. Now, as the Gateway Pundit has reported, at least 16 major fires have erupted at food industry facilities and plants just over the last five months. All of the fires have been officially listed as accidental or inconclusive. And I have to acknowledge, it, it could very well be that you know, there's 
there's a reasonable explanation. But I'm going to defer to uh, Ian Fleming from Goldfinger uh, pointing out the James Bond story. I think the, the, the saying was, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. And I'm going to ask you to to come with me just a little bit further down the rabbit hole here. I'm not stating this as fact, so I want to make that very clear. And and even if I was stating it as fact, I would insist, don't take this at face value. You just, you know, you decide whether this makes sense or not. But let's just suppose if you were part of a cabal of people, individuals, we'll call them, uh, I don't know, the Davos crowd, just for lack of a better name. But if you had designs to implement some kind of a great reset upon not just a particular population, but on everybody possible with as far-reaching effect as you could possibly get, how would you go about getting people to buy into it? Keeping in mind, especially if you're not elected, you can't appeal to, well, you know, you elected me to do this. I'm merely acting out the will of the people. But let's say that you had some kind of great reset in mind And you had it all figured out, okay, they're going to own nothing, they're going to be happy, they're going to live in pods, they're going to eat insect-based meat paste, and yes, it's going to be perfect. No one will own anything, and and it's just going to be a wonderful world. Oh, and uh, we're going to have to get, uh, you know, uh, the vast majority, about three-quarters of the world's population is going to need to die off so we can keep this sustainable, but hey, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that just be a great utopia? By the way, if you think I'm kidding, this, this is... These are openly stated goals by globalists and have been for for many, many decades. But it looks like because of the COVID pandemic, there are people who have figured, well, this uh, this is as good a time as any. The world's in a state of upheaval. People are sheltered in their homes. They're wearing masks. They're scared. They're waiting to be told what to do. Maybe it's time that we start to implement this great reset. I know you've heard that phrase. So now the question is, how do we get people on board? I mean, really get them on board. And I'm just going to ask you to think back to even a year ago, the kind of pressure that was being brought to bear to get people to take the vaccine. Everybody needs to get the vaccine. And it started out pretty mild, didn't it? Do you remember? It was it was a matter of, well, you know, it would be a really good thing if you get the vaccine. And then it kind of progressed to, hey, I'll tell you what, you get the vaccine, I will give you a free cheeseburger and fries. I still remember, you know, Bill de Blasio, you know, doing this, eating, oh, this is really good. And if you get the vaccine, you could have one of these too. And then it was like, well, not enough people are doing it. So, uh, hey, we'll pay you 50 bucks. And then it quickly progressed to, look, you really need to get the vaccine. You either get the vaccine or, you know, there are going to be consequences. And then, of course, uh, President Biden stepped forward. What was it? uh, Late summer, early September of last year. You either uh, get the vaccine or uh, you may have to lose your job because I'm going to require these companies under the auspices of OSHA to mandate vaccinations for their employees. And people literally lost their jobs because they were being forced to get a jab that for whatever reasons they did not want. Now, look, I don't care where you stand on on the vaccine issue as far as, well, I think it uh, has efficacy and I think it's actually protected people. A lot of people believe that. I'm not one of those people, but here's what I do believe. Everybody has the perfect inalienable right to make that decision for themselves. 
because it is a medical procedure. And not just a medical procedure, but it's one that once done is not easily undone. I mean, how do you unvaccinate yourself? How do you how do you pull mRNA injections out of your system once they've been put in there? Come on, you know the answer. You don't. So for whatever reasons, whether you think they are rational or irrational, that is the call of each individual person. And it's essential that everybody have that kind of medical autonomy to make that sort of decision. So why all the coercion? And I know it's, you know, our memories have faded a little bit. Even mine, I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling much more at peace and secure because I know the official coercion is backed way off. In part because politicians recognize, wow, the public is not liking this. But remember the amount of vitriol and the the amount of uh, scapegoating and and the othering of the unvaccinated. Well, they're going to have a winter of death and destruction, and you know, and they deserve it because they won't do what they're being told. I want you to take that same sense of animus that drove people in power to literally threaten people's livelihoods and take people's livelihoods from them, and apply it to okay, if they're still not on board. What about food? Okay, do you see where I'm going with this? If we can control people's food, I don't know, create shortages, supply shortages, or actual, you know, baby formula shortages and so forth, people will have to get in line. I mean, come on. Threatening people's job is one thing, but uh, if there's no food to go around or the only food that's available comes uh, with your compliance with what someone in authority is telling you, Oh, it's a marvelous uh, tool for getting people to comply. Something tyrants throughout human history have recognized. Probably the greatest example within recent memory of that being used, and this is you know not even counting you know the stuff that's taken place in in Africa and Somalia and Uganda and other places. But think about what Stalin did to the people in Ukraine back in the 1930s. If you haven't looked up Holodomor. Yeah, you might want to see that. Forced starvation of millions of people, tens of millions of people. Why? To get them to comply, to get them to submit. And then tell me, where have today's leaders become more enlightened or less likely to use that same kind of mechanism of control? The answer is uncomfortable, but we know what it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Hey, you found it. This is the place where we revel in wrong think. And it's necessary that people question the official narratives. I'm going to give you some very solid examples in the course of this hour. I want to thank my sponsors who make it possible, including SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. I have the deepest respect for Teresa and Eric Alsop, mainly because I've known them for a long, long time. And they are great people, truly great people. And they own this amazing sewing business in St. George, Utah, and... I know that, uh, you know, the people who understand sewing, they really get it. 
And it's it's not just a hobby. This is something that people who understand, you know, the value of long-arm quilting or having a good serger or a good sewing machine, they're willing to pay top dollar. I mean, you can you can start with entry-level machines for under 200 bucks, and from there, you know, we're talking, you know, small car prices for some of the really higher-end machines. But my point is people who take their sewing seriously do so because they get enjoyment, they create heirlooms for their family, they have a degree of self-sufficiency in being able to uh, create or repair their own clothing or blankets and, and quilts and things like this. If any of this makes sense to you, or if you know someone who really resonates with the love of sewing, steer them towards sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Now, they have a brick-and-mortar store right there in St. George, Utah. If you're in southern Utah, though, anywhere within the area, you may want to check out their online presence. They'll train you how to use the machines you buy from. They'll service what, what they sell you. Even if you didn't buy your machine from them, take it to them and they'll service it. They've got all the supplies. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Well, if you've ever suspected you are being treated like a pawn in someone else's game, my advice is don't be too quick to dismiss that notion. If you think, well, something here's not right, chances are very good that you are correct. Got a great article here from the Z-Man. It's a solid breakdown of the game that our managerial class is playing, as well as some ideas on how to opt out of it. Now, he says, there's an argument that we live in a novel political environment in which the mass media is the political authority. They get on an issue, and the political and corporate and the classes respond to it. By the way, this being the first part of June, look at all the rainbows that have magically appeared. Wow. It's almost like there's, I don't know, some kind of consensus here. Now, the Z-Man says, we saw this with the George Floyd story that was orchestrated by the big media operations. Now, on the other hand, political actors will seed the media with fake stories, hoping they'll put it into their megaphones. So the Russian collusion hoax cooked up by Team Clinton is a good example of this. A couple of weeks back, Tucker Carlson observed that most Republicans wake up in the morning and go to the New York Times. They and their staff read the thing over breakfast because it's their guide throughout the day. And this is true of mainstream conservatives as well. What passes for the right in America is entirely controlled by the left, which is controlled by the media. Old school liberals sound like Trump people when they complain about how the media runs their party. But the Z-Man says there is a lot of truth to the media mediaocracy uh, claim. The backers of the Ukraine fiasco, for instance, have been feeding the media nonsense tales about Ukraine. They handed them Ukraine lapel pins that they had made up for the occasion. Note, no one in the media looked into who supplied everyone on television with those pins. Instead, it was a unified media voice, a wall of sound, selling the Ukraine story. Washington and the political class in Europe were swept up in this unfolding disaster. Now, the thing is, though, the Russia hoax makes clear that the media does not have a coordinated center. The details of the hoax have been supplied in the court case against Clinton crony Michael Sussman. He relied upon confidence men like Franklin Four, who exist to inject false narratives into the media media ecosystem. And once these fake stories get loose, they rocket around the system repeated by the sociopaths who are attracted to life in the media ecosystem. Further proof of the passive nature of the media system is the war in Ukraine, a place few in the media can even find on a map. The Z-Man says there are three observable trends in the coverage of the war thus far. One is there are few Western reporters trying to cover the war on the ground in Ukraine. 
They went over for the photo ops but when, it's, when it started, but <clears throat> they, they made sure to stay in Kiev. And they quickly went back to their countries and left the reporting to contractors and interested think tanks. And that's the other thing about the media response to the war. The work-at-home war correspondents now do their reporting from press releases issued by outfits like the Institute for the Study of War. Alternatively, they rely on Ukrainians on the payroll of American or British intelligence services. In both cases, a five-minute search online would reveal these sources to be entirely fake. So instead, they just pass on the information without bothering to question any of it. The lack of original reporting and reliance on single sources with narrow agendas has resulted in a uniform opinion in the media. Even the so-called conservative media, which took off their American flag pins and put on the Ukraine pin, repeated the same story from the same sources as if it were wholly writ. What the Ukraine story reveals is the media echo system operates like a murmuration of starlings, rushing through the news cycle in response to external stimulus. Now, he says, this reality will lead some to assume this system is controlled by a tiny cabal of deep state actors in a hollowed-out volcano. In reality, the people trying to inject their special brand of poison into the system are often tangled in the system. The COVID panic is a perfect example. It was people hoping for media recognition who kept injecting ridiculous claims into the system. Now, these were not deep state players but often just ordinary people hoping for 15 minutes of fame. The frontline workers posting their made-up tales of woe on social media is the perfect example of how small players can move the media swarm. Hoping for attention, nurses and doctors started posting on social media stories that made them look like selfless heroes trying to save COVID victims. The psychosis, and it was a form of psychosis, was picked up by the media and amplified. These fake stories became fact which spawned new fake stories made up by media members. He says the COVID hoax, and it is fair to call it a hoax at this point, was not the result of clever scheming like the Russia collusion hoax. Instead, it was something like a stampede over a cliff. Unlike the animals in the herd, the people in this media stampede could question the rush over the cliff. But like the animals in the herd, they feared being trampled more than they feared the end result. And as a result, fantasy became holy writ and COVID turned into a bizarre mass media religion. In a way, the berserk obsession with disinformation and misinformation is not entirely motivated by malice toward the general public. The people running the New York Times and Washington Post still cling to the old myths about the media. They think they should be the cynics, not falling for their hoaxes. And they sort of get the problem, but they lack the proper perspective from their position inside the swarm to see that it is the nature of the swarm what makes it possible that is the problem. Now, it's tempting to think that at some point, the public will get wise to the fake news and this madness will come to an end. If no one believes what's in the media, then the media's ability to shape the news comes to an end. The trouble with this theory is that most people have already figured out that the news is fake. The Ukraine war is a prime example as most people never cared enough about it to listen to the story. Public apathy and skepticism have not changed the behavior of the media. Instead, what we may be heading into in the short run is a world in which the mass media operates like an online role-playing game for the managerial class. They get to play the various quests that get created in the media ecosystem. Since they live in a consequence-free world, as in they never pay the price for their error, 
they are free to explore their dreams within these fantasies. Once the quest is over, they transition to a new quest or maybe play a different character. We see this happening with Ukraine. As it becomes clear that this story will not end well for Ukraine or the Europeans, the players are looking for a new quest. Joe Biden's heroic management of the economy through the Putin-Trump inflation spiral looks like the new fun expansion pack. Maybe they play the China as a dangerous dragon add-on that came with the COVID edition. Maybe someone's about to release something entirely different and inject it into the media ecosystem. But the Z-Man says the result is, we are headed to a world in which the normal people go about their lives as best they can. Every once in a while, they will take notice of the streaming role-playing game that keeps the managerial class busy. That will usually happen when the role players mistake their world for the real world. Gas prices and baby food shortages being two current examples. He says otherwise, the managerial class is becoming a virtual world. A metaverse to occupy an otherwise worthless ruling elite. That's actually kind of a more hopeful note. (laughs) Anyway, I would encourage you to take a look at the article. Read it in detail if you would like. It's linked in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I think the great advice here, though, is that uh, go about your life. Unplug from the Matrix every so often. Yes, that if, if that means turn up, turn off this guy yammering behind the microphone, do it. Step away from the news and go out there and experience life right there as it is right in front of you. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I think the vast experience that most of us have or the experience the vast majority have is something like this. Once you've unplugged, Everything starts looking normal in a very, very short time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to thank the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being one of my premier sponsors on this program and I would encourage you or anyone you know who is looking for a mortgage this is particularly true if you live in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho reach out and contact Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage you can reach her at 703-4522 actually that's area code 435-703-4522 I have a link an email link in my show notes under sponsors which will take you right to her if you're in St. George You can stop by the Patriot Home Mortgage Offices, 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, any time that I have ever pointed out, hey, people are trying to use this tragedy for political gain, without exception, someone turns around and says, well, you're doing the same thing, man. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's what's happening here, but... When I see someone standing on uh, the graves of children, Beto, Beto O'Rourke, I'm looking at your, yeah, I'm looking your direction. Yes, he's actually standing on that tiny coffin. Oh, look, he's waving the bloody shirt. Oh, look, he's doing a little dance. He's, he's trying to draw attention to himself. Yeah, I'm a little bit cynical, but it's a predictable pattern. I've got an article here from W.R. Wordsworth. From senseless trauma to predictable hackery. This is some of the straightest talk that I've seen about uh, how we go from one to the other. He says, as revolting a spectacle as it was, it was scarcely surprising, considering the source, that in the immediate aftermath of the horrific killings at Uvalde, 
the president hobbled to a microphone to rehash stale partisan lies designed to defame half the nation and scapegoat his political adversaries, even sinking so low as to repeatedly enlist God as his partner in this disgraceful, transparently self-serving stunt. Now, in his screed, Biden delivered a litany of angrily couched divisive lies. And while the trotting out of these recycled cheap falsehoods is galling, one of the most offensive aspects of Biden's hateful little rant was its subtext. See, Biden's falsehoods were delivered in a tone that implied the Uvalde tragedy gives Biden and his political allies a license to gloat over the victims and to proclaim accusatorily, see, we told you so, you wouldn't let us have our way, and now this happened. As if murderous evil were amenable to common sense regulation, as though a depraved mind will always wilt in the face of wishful thinking and cease its vile quest for the means to mayhem, to, to mayhem if only countered by the mildest discouragement of poorly crafted, arbitrarily imposed re- regulatory restrictions. As has been noted elsewhere, None of the proposed gun control measures demanded by the Democrats would have stopped Uvalde from happening. A pump shotgun would have been just as devastating as a semi-automatic rifle in this instance. And beyond that, no national trauma should be used as an occasion for petty political denunciation. Now, he points out the more details emerge from Uvalde, the more disheartening the picture becomes. The reporting of recent days has called attention to the role that negligent security practices at the school, along with the inexplicable delay and hesitation of the police, may have played in worsening the tragedy. And we're also compelled to recognize that this horrific episode was ultimately rooted in a failure to effectively address or even recognize yet another individual case of dangerously deteriorating mental health. How can such madness go unnoticed? Why was there no intervention? This was clearly someone that should not have been able to pass a background check and yet did. And that must be addressed. Here, perhaps, is an opportunity for bipartisan action. Evidence of adolescence insanity should prohibit one from purchasing a firearm as a legal adult. Now, leaving these issues aside, let us return to the episode's predictable political exploitation. For some days now, we've been subjected to hysterical demands for gun control often more or less openly trumpeted as justified revenge against the nation's gun owners who once again stand accused of silent complicity in an act of criminality by an insane perpetrator. Owing to this episode, one now hears the usual demands for gun banning and confiscation. But one is not permitted to ask, why is it that when a black supremacist used an automobile as a murder weapon in Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing six and injuring over 60... No one in the press lunged into a hyperventilating, screaming fit, demanding the punishment and devehicularization of every car owner in the country. Why is it that gun owners are always blamed when a criminal grievously misuses arms that they themselves lawfully and responsibly possess? By the way, that's a great question. Wordsworth says, moreover, we are told that the United States, to its eternal and irredeemable shame, owing to its barbaric adoption and rebaffling retention of the Second Amendment, is the only nation in which these incidents happen. But let us temporarily accede to this false claim so as to elaborate upon its implied line of reasoning. We Americans, it seems, should hang our heads in shame, and our president, we are told, is embarrassed when he's placed in the awkward position of having to explain to foreign dignitaries why our nation, unlike theirs, is occasionally beset with these violent episodes. 
Well, the Second Amendment was devised in large measure to provide an ultimate counterweight to a potentially oppressive government. Its institution is in part is part and parcel rather of the decentralization of power that the founders sought to establish in the interest of securing the indefinite preservation of political liberty. The Second Amendment exists to ensure that the public possesses the means to resist the imposition of tyranny. So long as the public possesses these means, tyranny is far less likely. So an armed citizenry, one might say, represents a standing denial of opportunity to any aspiring tyrant or dictator inasmuch as an armed public imposes so great a cost on violently subduing the nation as to make it effectively impossible. Now, such standing precautions are easily laughed off by the Second Amendment's detractors who simply cannot imagine a plausible scenario in which the American people would find themselves compelled to offer armed resistance to their own government. And in a sense, we freely acknowledge their right to find such a scenario ridiculous. It's ridiculous because no marginally sane government would dare provoke an armed citizenry to active resistance. The reason we may rest assured that our government will not grotesquely abuse us is that we possess the effective means to resist its agents, were it to attempt to do so. But without these means, where would we stand vis-a-vis a violently abusive government? So, to return to the point from which we departed, our president finds himself embarrassed in the presence of foreign dignitaries. Alas, how this, our shameful archaic heritage, must burden the commission of his office. He has our sympathies, of course, but before we rush to wallow in our seemingly deserved national shame, are we not permitted to ask, where is our Auschwitz? Where is our Sobibor? Our Treblinka? Where is our Holodomor? The Khmer Rouge in Cambodia killed roughly one-third of their countrymen. Chairman Mao was said to have killed over 50 million of his. Where is the analogous American abusive government or the American experience? Where could it be that, or could it be that disarmed populations are left prey to violently abusive governments in ways that Americans never have been and are not now owing to the Second Amendment? Could this uniquely American institution merit some gratitude inasmuch as it preemptively nullifies a government-sponsored genocide as a viable project? These are some great questions, by the way. Wordsworth says we would also oblige the smarmy, hectoring, anti-Second Amendment screamers to acknowledge that in demanding our disarmament, either incrementally or all at once, they are also championing the establishment of a police state. For what else would one call a regime which works to ensure that the effective, the means of effective armed resistance are held solely by the military and police, institutions exclusively devoted to enforcing a state's claim to authority over its subjects? So, these catchy little proposals, you know, of, uh, of common-sense gun control are misdirected, simple-minded, non-solutions, and they should be denounced as such. I hope you'll click on this article. I'll have it linked in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I still maintain, look, as long as my government says it needs AR-15s or M-16s or whatever it is, as long as it feels it needs these tools, for whatever reason it thinks it needs them, I need one too. And that's just the way it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to give a shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. And just remind you that this is one of my great sponsors. If you are in need of ammunition, and I'm talking high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition, I would ask you to please consider giving your business to HSLAmmo.com. If you live in southern Utah, this is really easy. You can actually go and buy it from them directly. You'll also uh, find it's easy to order if you're outside of southern Utah. But uh, HSLAmmo.com, I appreciate them, everything that they do, and strongly recommend them as, uh, as a great place to obtain the ammo that you need. By the way, I don't know if I say this often enough, but thank you for, for giving this program a chance. Thank you for being among my listening audience. I never know how many listeners I have. And frankly, I'm less concerned with, well, what are the numbers? Are we pumping up those numbers? Are these rookie numbers? Are we, you know, getting more and more people? Are we taking over the world yet? That's not important. What is important is I know that there are people out there who daily are looking for better understanding of the world around them. And not just, you know, someone tell me what it all means, but where can I find resources that give me information that I can study and come to my own informed conclusions on? That's my goal. And I'm encouraging you, think clearly, think independently, question it all. And I appreciate you letting me be one of those voices that, uh, that gives you some of that material to work with. Can't guarantee that everything I've got here is going to be 100% right. But I take great care not to knowingly mislead somebody, anybody, in any way. So, again, I'm not uh, omniscient, but I'll do my level best to make sure that I'm not steering you into more misinformation or disinformation or things that will keep you enslaved. You know, I look back at the last couple of years particularly, and I try to find the silver lining, or at least I, I try to find what is the good that came out of this? Because I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't hard. It was, and in some ways it still is really tough. I think we're all carrying some scars. But one of the best things that I have found about trying times is how they open the door to greater understanding that we're likely to get when everything is going great. Now, don't get me wrong. I love it when life is going smoothly. I love it when everything works out. But those are not the times when I've grown. Maybe you recognize a similar pattern in your own life. It's the difficult times that show us what we're really made of. And it's not always about, yes, you know, that's when you harden into a diamond and you become, you know, some superhero. It's more a matter of that's where the lessons that help shape us come from. And I thought about this as I read a recent essay from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute about how the pandemic response changed his thinking. And I've trusted Jeffrey, Tr- Jeffrey Tucker on, on this subject as well as other subjects for a long time. I thought he always had really great insights. So if there was something that he found particularly instructive over what he learned, I'm like, I want to know more about that. He says, looking back to the before times, meaning before middle of March 2020, we were all quite naive about liberty, technology, the mob, and the state. In fact, he says most of us had no idea what was possible and that the dystopia in movies could become real in our times and so suddenly. The intellectual parlor games were over, the fights spilled from the classrooms to the streets, and he says it's difficult for me to recreate the thinking behind my exuberant confidence that we faced a future of peace and progress forever, times when I could not conceive of circumstances that would disable the whole trajectory. 
In fact, he puts it this way. He says, I was previously sure that the state as we know it was melting away bit by bit. He says, looking back, I had become like a Victorian-style Whig who never dreamed that the Great War would happen. To be sure, I might have been correct in my empirical observation that public institutions were losing credibility and had been for 30 years, and yet it is for this very reason that some major fear campaign was likely to come along to disrupt the trajectory. He says, it had not occurred to me that it would succeed so marvelously. The experience has changed all of us, he says, making us more aware of the depth of the crisis and teaching us lessons we can only wish we did not have to learn. So I want to walk you through some of the lessons that he learned. I think these are really worthwhile, and I hope you'll, you'll take these in the spirit intended. This is not wallowing in misery and wallowing in victimhood, but what did we learn from the, the crucible that we passed through? Number one, the role of information. Jeffrey Tucker says, My previous naivete, I think, was due to my confidence in information flows from my study of history. Every despotism of the past was marked by lack of access to truth. For example, how is it that the world believed that Stalin, Mussolini, and Hitler were men of peace and could be skillfully managed via diplomatic relations? Why did people believe the reports emanating from the New York Times that there was no famine in Ukraine? that Mussolini had cracked the code to efficient economic planning and that Hitler was over the top but essentially harmless. He says, My previous view view has been that we did not know better because we did not have access to accurate reports. Now, the same could be said about other egregious incidences of despotism from history. Humanity wallowed in darkness. And the Internet fixes that, or so we believed. But Jeffrey Tucker says that turned out to be wrong. The speed and abundance of information actually amplified error. At the height of the pandemic response, anyone could have looked up the demographics of risk, the failings of PCR and masks, the history and significance of natural immunity, the absurdities of plexiglass and capacity restrictions, the utter futility of travel limits and curfews, the pointless brutality of school closures. It was all there, not just on random blogs, but also in the scholarly literature. But the existence of correct information was nowhere near enough. It turns out, and this is perhaps obvious now, that it's not about the information availability as such that matters, but people's capacity to make sound judgments about that information. That is what was lacking all along. Localized fear, parochial germophobia, general innumeracy, superstitious trust in talismans, meaningless ritualism and population-wide ignorance of the achievements of cell biology, overrode rational argumentation and rigorous science. It turns out that floods of information, even when it includes that which is accurate, is not enough to overcome weak judgment, a lack of wisdom, and moral cowardice. Secondly, trust in big tech. In the early years of their founding, companies like Google, Microsoft, Twitter, and even Facebook had a libertarian ethos bound up with the ideas of industrial disruption, free flow of ideas, and democratic participation. Legacy media was terrified. We came to see the new companies as the good guys and the old media as the bad guys. In fact, Tucker says, I wrote whole books heralding the dawn of the new, which in turn was connected to my confidence that more information would allow the best information to dominate public debate. But he says at some point in this trajectory, all these institutions became captured by a different ethos. How precisely this came to be has a mix of explanations. Regardless, it happened, and this became incredibly obvious and painful during the pandemic. 
as the CEOs volunteered their efforts to amplify CDC and World Health Organization information, no matter how wrong it turned out to be. The more users pushed back, the more brutal tactics of censorship and cancellation became the norm. Now, he says, clearly, I had not anticipated this, but I should have. The long history of collaboration of big business with big government shows how often they work hand in glove. The New Deal is a case in point. In this case, the danger became especially pronounced because big tech has a very long and deep reach into our lives via location tracking and compelling notifications to the point that nearly every American carries on his person what turned out to be a propaganda and compliance tool, the very opposite of the initial promise. Another example of big business, and perhaps the preeminent one, was Big Pharma, which likely played a sizable role in policy decisions made very early on. The promise that the shot would fix everything turned out to be untrue, a fact which many are still unwilling to admit. But consider the expense of this misjudgment. It's unthinkable. Number three, he talks about the administrative state revealed. There are three kinds of states, the personal state, the elected or democratic state, and the administrative state. Americans think we live in the second type, but the pandemic revealed something else. Under a state of emergency, it's the bureaucracy that rules. Americans never voted for mask mandates, school closures, or travel restrictions. Those were imposed by edicts by public health officials who seemed delighted by their power. Further, these policies were imposed without proper consultation. At times, it seemed like the legislatures and even the courts were utterly powerless or too cowardly to do anything. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is a serious crisis for any people who imagine themselves to be free. The U.S. was not founded to be this way. The administrative state is a relatively new invention with the first full deployment tracing to the Great War, and it's only gotten worse. And this is going to take a change more far-reaching than a shift in which party controls the legislature. It's going to take foundational change, the establishment of walls of separation, paths of accountability, judicial limits, and ideally abolition of whole departments. Now that's a tough agenda, he admits. And it simply cannot happen without public support, which in turn depends on the cultural conviction that we simply cannot and will not live this way. You liking this so far? I think these are some very solid observations. We'll come back to Jeffrey Tucker's uh, article here in just a few moments. Again, and you can access it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. I got this article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute talking about how the pandemic response changed his thinking. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table here and tell you, I think Jeffrey Tucker is is an unusually keen thinker. I think this guy sees a lot of stuff and and draws a lot of insights that that I truly appreciate. And on these uh, this particular list, I think he really he, he nails some of the takeaways that we can draw from the last couple of years and how the pandemic response showed us some of our vulnerabilities. Number four that he points out is the issue of inequality. Now, with economics education, he says, I never took the issues of wealth inequality as such very seriously. 
I mean, how possibly could it matter what the gap between the rich and the poor happens to be so long as there's mobility between the classes? It doesn't somehow hurt the poor that others are rich. In fact, you can even make the opposite case. Now, he says, I found the idea, or I've always found the idea of class itself to be largely exaggerated and even irrelevant from the point of, my, uh, point of view of political economy, a Marxian construct that has no real impact on social organization. Indeed, he says, I've long suspected that those who say otherwise were seizing on class as a way of dividing up the social order that is otherwise universally cooperative. And so it would be in a free society. But that's not where we are today. And this much we know. The professional class exercises outsized influence over the affairs of state. That much should be exceedingly obvious, though he says, I'm not sure it was to me before 2020. Jeffrey Tucker says, what we saw was the unfolding of a coercive social system that favored the professional class over the working class, a group rendered nearly voiceless for the better part of two years. Now, he says, it's very obvious to me why a society with entrenched social classes really matters for the operation of politics. Without class mobility, both up and down the social ladder, the ruling class becomes protective of its rank and deeply fearful of losing it, even to the point of pushing policies to entrench its privileges. Lockdown was one of them. It was a policy constructed to deploy the working classes as sandbags to bear the burden of herd immunity and to keep their betters clean and protected. He says it's truly impossible to imagine that lockdown would ever have happened in the absence of this class stratification and ossification. This brings us to observation number five, the mob. Jeffrey Tucker says, along with my confidence in information flows comes an implicitly populist sense that the people find intelligent answers to important questions and act on them. He says, I believe I've always accepted that as an ideological prior, but the COVID years showed otherwise. The mob was unleashed in ways that I've never witnessed. Walk the wrong way down the grocery aisle and expect to get screamed at. Millions slapped masks on their kids' faces out of fear. The compliance culture was out of control, even when there was zero evidence that any of these non-pharmaceutical interventions achieved their goal. The non-compliers were treated as disease spreaders, subjected to demonization campaigns from the top that quickly trickled down to corona justice warriors at the grassroots. Now, the cultural divisions here became so intense that families and communities were shattered. The impulse towards segregation and stigmatization became extreme. It was infected versus uninfected, masked versus not, vaccinated versus not, and finally, red versus blue. Severe indictments of others manufactured entirely in the name of virus management. He says, truly, I had no idea that such a thing would be possible in the modern world. This experience should teach us that the onset of tyranny is not just about top-down rule. It's about a whole-of-society takeover by a manufactured mania. Now, perhaps some form of populism will lead us out of this mess. But he says, populism is a two-edged sword. It was a terrified public that backed the irrational response to the virus. Today, the rational seemed to outnumber the irrational, but that could easily flip the other way. What we really need is a system that is safe for freedom and human rights, that protects those ideals even when the madness of crowds or the arrogance of intellectuals or the lust for power of the bureaucrats wants to scrap them. And that means revisiting the very foundations of what kind of world in which we want to live. 
what we once believed was a settled matter has been completely upended. Figuring out how to recover and restore is the great challenge of our times. So yes, he says, as with millions of others, my naivete is gone, replaced by a harder, tougher, more realistic understanding of the great struggles we face. People in wartime in the past must have gone through such similar transformations. It affects us all, personally and intellectually. It's the great moment when we realize that no outcome is baked into the fabric of society. The lives we live are not granted to us by anyone. That we must make for ourselves. I just, man, I want that just to sink in. It's such an eloquent way of pointing out something which I, along with many others, have said all along, no one is coming to save you. And I'm not trying to pick on those who are, you know, currently working and trying hard to, you know, to come up with political solutions. Let's get some good candidates. Let's get some good leadership out there. I mean, use your influence as wisely as you can wherever you happen to be. That's the essence of leadership. But I would caution you, don't become dependent on the idea that if we can just get a good politician in this particular office, it's going to change things, because it won't. The system is insular. It protects itself. It doesn't matter. You get a good person in office, and they may have some influence. They might slow the turn of that wheel that's slowly crushing us and crushing our liberties. But it's not going to be enough to stop it. So start looking in places other than politics to use your influence. It's not so much a matter of we've got to get out there and we've got to, you know, destroy the political machine that's, that's trying to destroy us. I know this seems counterintuitive, but what if instead we simply withdraw our consent and our support of that political machine to the degree that it becomes obsolete? It's just a bunch of honking politicians standing on a stump making noises trying to get people's attention. And they can't. Because there are enough people who recognize we don't need what you're selling. Go peddle that horse crap somewhere else. I'm sorry if I sound really jaded, but uh, that's that pretty much sums up, you know, how I feel about most of politics. And and I say this with the understanding I've I've watched some truly good people step up and try to use their influence. And I admire them for everything that they've done. And I think, I think they have done some good. But politics alone isn't going to be enough to, to cure what ails us. You think of all the different institutions in society, and a healthy society has at least seven major institutions that, uh, that contribute to its well-being. Government is one of them. Religion or clergy is another. Academia is yet another. Media is another. Business, community, I'm leaving one out. Family, oh my gosh, that probably should have been the first one. Every one of those institutions has a role to play in how a society functions. And you notice, only one of them actually has the power to use violence to accomplish its means. And that would be government. And that seems to be the one that people have, have been trained to turn to. What was the article I saw just recently? Oh, uh, Salon. 
<laughs> Salon is, is uh, they're decrying that, uh, that classical education, the far right is coming for college with taxpayer-funded classical education. Oh, that is so dangerous. You know, these classical education programs are really right-wing initiatives funded by Republicans. I'm sorry, but do you know what classical education is? I mean, in, in the, the sense of, you know, going back to the great thinkers of Western civilization, it's about learning how to think for yourself, learning how to think, how to question, as opposed to what to think, which, if you look around today, seems to be quite the fashionable way to go. So, yeah, I can see why Salon would be concerned. Teaching people how to think is very threatening when those who are trying to teach them what to think, you know, are are determined to stay in control of them. Someone who knows how to think might just see through the smokescreen and see through the deception and and, uh, might even question things like, why, why again, is is it so important that my kindergartner have discussions about being binary and and, uh, gender issues and what's drag queen story hour at my kid's school? Really? That's supposed to be an enlightened approach to life? Yeah. Thinking for yourself. It scares people. And that's exactly why I advocate for it and encourage it. And I'm probably a bad guy for doing so. If that makes me a bad guy, I humbly accept that label. But I will wear it with pride. (laughs) So stop flattering me. Thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.